This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today's show is our first re-release of a conversation I've had previously, and it's my conversation with Greg Coates from Episode 3. Greg Coates is a scholar whose work focuses on political theology, as well as the author of the book Politics Strangely Warmed, Political Theology and the Wesleyan Spirit. But before we get back to that, let me make some announcements first. Starting next week, our newsletter, The Exvangelical Reader, will launch. The Exvangelical Reader will provide expanded show notes, links to books, music, and whatever else may be mentioned on the show, as well as a curated list of articles from around the web that I think are interesting and worth sharing with you. It'll be the type of email that you're happy to receive. A link to sign up is in the show notes. If you haven't already, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. Patreon is a wonderful platform that allows you to support the work of Exvangelical directly each month. I'm continuing to work out the awards for various levels of support, and I do want to thank the following patrons, Stephen, Kyle, Diane, and Patrick. Please rate and review the show on iTunes if you haven't, and follow the show across social media at facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod, and on Twitter and Instagram at exvangelicalpod. You can follow me directly on Twitter at brchastain. Now, with Thanksgiving coming up and some potentially awkward conversations in your future, I thought this conversation with Greg was more important and relevant than ever. He really dives into a lot of the history of political theology specific to American evangelicalism, the sorts of cultural norms that it created, as well as his experience in other cultures and um, ways that his own experience and study has sort of broadened his understanding. We do kvetch a little bit about Trump, and this was actually before his election. So um, it's an interesting insight into the sorts of processing that a lot of people that may listen to this show have gone through. So without further ado, let's get back into it. If um, I hope this is relevant for those who may have joined the show later on. This was originally episode three, as I mentioned before, um, but I'm happy to share it with you again. All right. Have a good one. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Exvangelical. We've got a great guest today by the name of Greg Coates. Greg is a PhD candidate in historical theology, as well as the author of the book Politics Strangely Warmed, Political Theology and the Wesleyan Spirit. We talk about his evangelical youth, his journey to China, his time as a pastor in the inner city, and we also critique conservative evangelicalism's dalliances with the Republican Party since the 1970s. It's a very good conversation, uh, covers a lot of topics, and is about an hour and a half long, um, but it is a wonderful discussion, and I can't wait to share it with you. All right, now let's get into this conversation. Thanks very much. Hi, uh, welcome to Exvangelical. I have with me this week uh, Greg Coates. Uh, he is a PhD candidate at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, uh, father of two. And um, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about his experience and um, where he is, uh, where he is now. So, um, welcome, Greg. Thank you so much, Blake. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, let's just start at the beginning. Where did you um, Where did you grow up? Yeah. Well, like uh, um, is common among a lot of evangelicals. I grew up in a 
a very um, religious home, very devout. Uh, my father is a pastor in the Methodist Church, which is one of the holiness denominations. And um, uh, both my father and mother are um, very committed, uh, serious-minded Christians who shaped me and my faith from when I was very young. There was never time I can recall uh, that I didn't know about Jesus because, uh, you know, I was read the storybooks from as early, from before I could talk. Um, so I was kind of, uh, it was kind of in the air that I, that I breathed uh, growing up. Um, I'm very thankful for my heritage because uh, without it, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, my pilgrimage has taken me to different places, but, um, you know, I still have deep respect for my parents, even if I disagree with them on some things. Um, so growing up as a, as a pastor's kid, um, I was kind of a leader in my youth group and, uh, I was into Bible quizzing, which is a big thing in our little denomination. Um, so by, by the time I graduated from high school, I had actually at one point or another memorized about two thirds of the new Testament, um, from the various, from the seven different years that I'd spent in the quizzing program. Um, and uh, at, at about 18, as it's common for that age, I um, just thought I had it all figured out. I had all, all the answers. And I went to college kind of with that attitude. I had been warned about um, these liberal professors that were down there. I went to Greenville College in Illinois. And um, I went there armed to do battle. I had uh, books at my side. I even attended, in the summer before I went to college, attended a seminar in Colorado. Um, it was led by um, a, a guy named Dr. Alan Noble. I believe that was his name. And I know it's Noble. Um, and it's called Summit Ministries in Colorado. It's basically a, um, a very fundamentalist, uh, conservative, right-wing, um, uh, hyper-Calvinist um, boot camp where they kind of indoctrinate you with apologetic arguments to use against your secular liberal um, acquaintances. We even went out and tried to convert people um, on the last day where we were trained in uh, kind of like an evangelism explosion sort of method uh, where we would um, ask people if they were willing to participate in a survey, and through kind of a hook like that, we would get them to. We would try to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. Gotcha. Um, was that a what, yeah. what? What part of a what? What part of Colorado was that in? Uh, it's in Colorado Springs. I'm not sure if it's still going or not, but it uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it is. It was thriving at the time that I went, and this was this would have been the summer of. Uh, 1999, I believe. And um, it, uh, you know, I mean, the people that I met there were, were good people. They were very genuine. Um, but it's, it's um, kind of represents to me the pinnacle of a subculture that I was utterly immersed in without even being aware of it. It's like um, a fish isn't aware of the water that they swim in. And I wasn't aware of the um, the very particular nature of the evangelical culture that I was raised in. And 
um, you know, it, it's not really until you step out of it that you can kind of see it more clearly for what it is, I think. So can you tell, um, can you explain a little bit about um, anything in particular to the free Methodist tradition? Um, I grew up uh, going to United Methodist churches. Um, so I went to one in, uh, um, I went to one in rural uh, central Indiana. Um, so like within the UM church, there's, there is a pretty big, like, um, I would say like rural urban divide. Um, but, right. but there was definitely a lot. Of, I mean, there was conservatism. I mean, we, we had like, we, we definitely had like women pastors present and, and that was very, that was very much within the Methodist tradition. But, you know, if you went to, uh, Chicago, downtown Chicago, UM church, it'd be a very different experience, even back in the eighties and nineties when I was growing oh, up. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we used to joke that the free Methodist church is about as free as the United Methodist church is united. So, <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so it has a, a, um, a shared Wesleyan heritage, but, uh, but there are a number of divisions within that particular history, right? Yeah, so the um, you're right. We we share the same uh, kind of theological roots going back to the method, the original Methodist movement with John Wesley in the 18th century in England, and then uh, the emergence of American Methodism in the late 18th century and early 19th century in America. Um, so, in a nutshell, what happened uh, was this: that Christianity in America has always dealt with this tension between um, sort of a movement on the margin among uh, people who are poor. Um, at the time, it was a movement among slaves and women and the uneducated, um, and largely people who were lower middle class or lower class. Um, and that is part of what gave the movement its vitality. Methodism by the year 1820 had become the largest Protestant body in the United States, um, which was quite remarkable considering that it was only about a thousand people um, at the dawn of the Revolutionary War. Um, and so it, it had experienced this um, incredible explosive growth. And largely it was because it tapped into this kind of egalitarian. Um, political spirit, uh, what we call Jeffersonian republicanism, this idea that uh, we can be independent and self-sufficient, and uh, the theology of the Methodists fit with that really well. Uh, we can have it taught that through our own free choices, we can come in contact with God, that we don't need some kind of mediator or priest um, to intercede for us, but that we ourselves can have experiences with God. And so um, Methodism, as it grew, um, eventually became kind of culturally respectable. It built large churches in the cities. Um, the wealthy began to be converted to it and donate um, significant sums of money to it. And so the Free Methodist Church grew out um, from the mid-19th century when a number of people were unhappy with the turn toward respectability and wealth, um, they saw it as a an abandonment of original Methodism and of original Wesleyanism. They saw it as theologically inconsistent uh, and believed basically that a lot of Methodists were compromising way too much on their theology and on their social witness 
um, in order to appeal to people with power and to become culturally respectable. So a movement grew up really from the 1820s and forward. Actually, you can trace it back to the Cane Ridge Revival, um, I believe it was in 1802. Um, and there were uh, a number of people who said, this isn't who we are. We need to um, recapture our original vision for holiness. And it became what's called the holiness movement. Um, a, a, an attempt to recapture Wesley's teachings on entire sanctification um, and also to demand that it become once again a church among the poor. Um, the, uh, the sort of respectable Methodists didn't like this, and in, my, in the case of my own denomination, the Free Methodist Church, um, the founder, B.T. Roberts, had written some scathing periodical uh, scathing articles, rather, in a, in a popular Methodist periodical, and uh, the powers that be didn't like it, and they, they kicked him out of the church. Um, and so that's how the Free Methodist Church was born. It was out of the holiness tradition. Um, and when we say the holiness tradition, we, we talk about um, not only the Free Methodists, but the Wesleyan Church and the Nazarene Church. Those are, in particular, the, the three major uh, players, although you can also argue that e even modern-day Pentecostalism um, actually comes from uh, the holiness tradition as well. Hmm. Interesting. I guess we should disclose here that uh, Greg is actually a, a free Methodist scholar, so a lot of this this information that he's dropping is is courtesy of the fact that he has spent several years studying uh, his denomination's history and isn't Probably not just innate knowledge from being a PK. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that, thanks for that clarification. Um, <laughs> I probably got some deep waters there. I was trying no, to that, do it in a nutshell. I, it's dangerous to ask a PhD student about, about the um, topic. No, that's exact, That's definitely, I mean, we're, I, I definitely want to loop back to a number of things you mentioned. Um, one, um, um, the original movement by started by John Wesley was in very in many ways very socially conscious, and then you also have this free Methodist movement that is also very socially conscious, and that is within the history of those denominations uh, at the at their origins. What was it? What was it like in the eighties and nineties when you were growing up? Um, was that sort right. of was that sort of um teaching still present? I mean, was that sort of t either mode of thinking or anything like that um, still present within the denomination? Or had it um, kind of subsided into this sort of generalized evangelicalism that honestly a lot of people can identify with? Right, right. And uh, I mean, it's a great question. Um, you can find vestiges of this interest in social reform within modern-day evangelicalism. So, for example, it's not apolitical. Um, evangelicals are people who vote, and they organize, and they try to get their candidate into office. And, um, you know, generally speaking, you have evangelicals supporting Mike Pence, for example, because he, too, has had this kind of conversion experience, so he's one of us. And we need to get our man into office or our woman into office in Washington so that we can preserve our values. That is all kind of the residual um, 
effect of the original 19th century impetus to create a, a Christian America, to create a sanctified society. Um, but the problem is that it's only on particular issues. Um, the, so um, the evangelicals might be very passionate about picketing uh, against abortion or um, trying to legislate against abortion, for example. But um, say um, when George Bush uh, vetoed a bill that would have provided health care to children five and under, um, evangelicals didn't lift a finger about that because that was not on their radar, you see. So what happened was it became kind of partisan and evangelicals in the 70s and 80s, and my church is included in this, um, became enamored with the religious right and the moral majority. Um, and the and so that meant focusing on particular issues that fit within the conservative Republican paradigm and uh, neglecting those issues that might be quote unquote liberal issues, uh, social justice issues. And so, you know, growing up in the Free Methodist Church, uh, they were people who were very pious and very uh, intensely committed to their faith, but social justice was not a great emphasis on the radar. And that, I think, is precisely what happens when the church gets in bed with a political party. They begin to kind of corrupt their understanding of the faith, and they make compromises. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that kind of gets at your question. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, let's get back a little bit to where you, to where you uh, started just a few a few minutes ago. Which was you were also talking a bit about your experience at uh, you said Greenville College is that right? Um, That's right. And then mm -hmm. so you went to this uh, you went to a boot camp to refute um, secular professors and everything like that. Was Greenville a did it have any affiliation? Is it a state school or I'm not familiar. I mean it's it's downstate Illinois, right? Um, downstate being yeah, any, right. anywhere outside of Chicago. Um, for <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, it's about 45 miles east of St. Louis um, in Illinois. It is actually a Free Methodist College. Um, it was founded in 1892 by Free Methodists and uh, maintains its affiliation with the Free Methodist Church. However, it has something of a reputation in among a lot of pastors in the Free Methodist Church as being kind of a liberal uh, college. And I was warned about this um, going there. And so uh, entered the college, uh, you know, armed for battle and um, ready to defend the conservative evangelicalism I had grown up with, rather than to go there to learn and to listen and to um, be corrected or to um, educate, uh, receive an education, basically. <laughs> so. So how did that sit with you when you were in college? Um, I mean, where, did you have your did you have your guard up all the time, or over time did that begin to lessen? Um, what was your experience? Yeah, there? you know, I can point to the day when things changed for me because um, I, for the first two years, my freshman and sophomore year, I really developed a reputation for being kind of militant and. Uh, 
being an angry evangelical, um, I would often argue with professors and stand up and publicly denounce their teaching as unbiblical. Um, I saw myself as as being a soldier for a very righteous cause, and um, and saw these professors as the enemy. Um, then in January of my um, my junior year, I was actually in a class. Um, um, for, it was it, well. It's not important what class it was, but a, a professor came to me, and um, she just simply said, "Greg, where is the love? Where is? Are we just wrong about everything? Do you have nothing to learn from us? And if you have nothing to learn from us, why do you pay thousands of dollars to come to this college? Um, and and why do you have to be so angry with us all the time? And it was a it was a really um, kind of a harsh rebuke, and yet it was exactly what I needed to hear, um, because I had been way too dogmatic and way too militant and angry, and I knew that this professor wasn't saying it because she hated me. She was saying it because she loved me, and um, it was kind of my uh, conversion experience, if you will, where I I left that room with um, my heart was heavy because I didn't like the fact that I was. I had a reputation for being militant. I wanted to be known as a person with, of love and of compassion. And yet, um, this reputation I built for myself, I fully deserved it. Um, so I even spent time in prayer and um, shed a few tears. And I made a decision that I would just keep my mouth shut for the next year. That in classes, I wouldn't be the one standing up challenging things. I would just shut up. And listen, and um, that next year was a transformative time. Uh, well, these things happen gradually, but I can still, I look back to that moment as a turning point, where I began to open my mind to new perspectives and to question whether or not, in fact, I did have all the answers. Um, and for somebody who's really and this is the problem with a lot of conservative evangelicalism. It doesn't leave room for questions. It doesn't leave space for alternative points of view because it is a, a kind of an enclosed system. Um, and if you remove uh, one brick from the fundamentals, then the fear is the whole building will collapse. And uh, once I finally submitted myself and was willing to listen, then the process of uh, deconstruction, the holy deconstruction, um, could begin to take place. Hmm. Wow, that's, um, I mean, that that is a very uh, attuned teacher, I think, to, to kind of recognize that in a, in a student and be able to tell them in such a way that, that they'll be able to receive, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't a simple thing for them to tell you. Um, no, no, not at all. But I'm so thankful for it. And um, to this day, I want uh, the reason that I'm pursuing this degree to become a college professor at a school like Greenville or Indiana Wesleyan or whatever um, is because of the transformative experience that that those professors had in my life. Um, I owe a lot to them, and I'm very thankful for their for their work. 
So after Greenville, you went, you continued your study. Did you go directly to seminary or did you take any sort of time off for work or was it directly to grad school? I did take some time off. I, I graduated a little early and um, my wife, Courtney, and I graduated very, or we, we um, married very young while we were in college. So I worked to put her through her last year of college and I was okay. a, I worked with a young boy who had a cerebral palsy in the public school system, caring for him. And then we took a year um, to go to China and to teach English. We didn't have children yet, and I wanted to have a kind of cross-cultural encounter, and this was a deep way of doing it. Um, and uh, probably more than any other year in my life, that year of living abroad, um, living as a minority, long uh, as as an alien in exile, so to speak, um, was really transformative for me. I started to question lots of things about uh, conservatism and uh, particularly about patriotism and nationalism and militarism. This was right when the Iraq War was starting, um, and the entire world was appalled by the unilateral actions of, of George Bush. Um, and it was a, uh, you know, I, I often say that, that George made me a liberal, um, because <laughs> his, his war and his politics, um, I found so abhorrent, um, as a Christian <laughs> that, uh, it made me start to critically think about, um, uh, this kind of alliance, this unholy alliance between evangelicals and the Republican party. I absolutely. I actually um that I have the same a very similar narrative when it comes to um the the Bush era policy and and becoming more much more aligned to the left politically. Um that my one of my very first days of college uh like I one of my very first days of college I think it was the first full week of class like we started we tended to start the Tuesday after Labor Day. And then the first full week of class, um, that Tuesday was September 11th. Oh, wow. So immediately, you know, there was all this, all this talk. And then all of a sudden the campus was overrun with, um, with, with talk about the possibility of war and everything else. And then over the next ensuing couple of years, uh, it just became even more clear that there was this terrible conflation between uh, conservatism and the Christianity that was being espoused, especially within the social sciences department I was, I was a part of. Um, and it absolutely, absolutely made me a more liberal person. Um, just be Mm -hmm. just thinking, just thinking through those things personally and coming to the conclusions that, that that was not within the alignment of what I understood to be um to be a christian witness or whatever sort of language you want to uh, assign to it uh, whether it's any sort of christian inter- uh, interpretation of the world it didn't seem to support that 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 action absolutely so absolutely so i am right on course with you there at least in, in parallel um and but, I think that there's a, probably a whole generation of people that are uh, of of evangelicals or ex-evangelicals 
who are um, in that same situation. Because what the Bush administration did was reveal to us um, how uh, compromised the church had become uh, by, you know, aligning itself with the Republican Party in order to get Bush elected. I mean, without evangelicals, it's obvious Bush wouldn't have been elected either the first or the second time. Um, and so, you know, he was our man. He's a, you know, this devout, converted, evangelical, United Methodist from Texas. He's one of us. And, and here he is um, indiscriminately having people killed on the other side of the world. And that disconnect between the message of Jesus um, to love our neighbor and pray for those who persecute us, um, the juxtaposition there, I think, caused a lot of um, disequilibration, uh, you know, a, a lot of trouble in the minds of a whole bunch of evangelicals, especially young ones in their 20s who are trying to think through their faith. Um, it was around this time I had a professor say, I'm not exactly sure what Christ meant when he said, love your enemies, but I don't think he meant to bomb the hell out of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, that hit me and I thought he's right. So uh, anyway, your story, my story. Um, I think we're part of a, an entire generation that has been impacted by these historical events. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what was it like to be an American overseas during that time? I mean, you you mentioned and that the world was appalled, but like within your within your locality where you were in China, I, were people just confused? What 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 was their reaction to you as an American? What was their reaction to um to America in general? Right. Well, my students because I was an American and they didn't know very many of them. They all wanted to talk about um, Bush and about the Iraq war and about politics in America. And of course, I love politics anyway, and was very happy to talk about it. But whenever any of them would ask me, are you for the war or not? I, I would, I would be so conflicted. I didn't know what to say. I, you know, I was raised a, a, a Republican and yet uh, I had these feelings that I don't appreciate. I'm not behind this war. This isn't a just war. Even by Christian just war theory standards, this doesn't even meet that criteria. This is a crusade. Um, so it caused me to kind of think much more critically about my positions and also being aware of the fact that I was there as a Christian. Everybody knew I was a Christian. And so the stance that I take and the things that I say are representing to a large group of Chinese people what an American Christian is. And ultimately, I just decided I don't want to convey to them that Christians are militants, that Christians are, are warriors. Um, and so my, my conviction that the war was wrongheaded uh, deepened my resolve to speak out against it. And I did so among the Chinese. It was, a, it was both a crisis for me politically and theologically. Um, and theologically, it was a crisis. Just simply being around so many people that I loved, came to love so deeply, um, none of whom were Christians. And thinking, uh, so do I believe all these people are going to hell? You know, and unless I convert them, 
uh, are they not going to be in heaven with me? I mean, so the uh, the theological crisis began to form as well. And I believe that's a holy moment in anyone's journey when we come face to face with the other, with someone who is different, who is, I mean, radically different uh, in, in culture and language and religion and ethnicity and all this. Um, it's a holy moment because it forces us to ask ourselves, what do I believe about God? What do I believe about these people? Um, and do I harbor beliefs in my heart that are in, inhuman? Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of the encounter with the other as a conversion moment, because it was for me. Hmm. So that was a, you spent a year doing that in, was it on mainland China? Was it in? Um... Yes, it was in. In mainland China, in a city called Tianjin, which is in the far north, uh, its old name in the English opinion is Tientsin, but it's a port city, a uh, city of about 9 million people that nobody's ever heard of, um, between Beijing and the coast. And then from your year there, you then came back to, um, to the States, and you went to Asbury seminary um which is right which is a methodist uh seminary which has more uh, evangelical leanings than than others um what what sort of questions did you bring to seminary from that experience um i mean you had these questions about these this experience with the other how did that influence your time in seminary Right. I mean, it, I'm so yeah, I'm so thankful for that year in China before seminary because it did form a lot of very pressing questions, very practical questions in my mind about what it is we do as Christians. What is the mission of God uh, in the world, and how do I fit into that? Um, because I, one thing I was convinced of is that it's not my job to form miniature American, white American evangelicals all across the world. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, it's not my job to make clones of myself. Um, and yet, that is kind of what I've been taught uh, that evangelism is, right? That it's making them one of us. And so that that was kind of the primary driving question going into it is what is this whole thing called church doing because um do we really want to make all the southeast asian the african and the chinese and and the south american all these people groups into um suv driving gun toting mall shopping american consumers <laughs> i don't think so uh, right, and so, are we exporting our culture, or are we exporting Christ? Um, I think it's a really important question to ask. So, those were all kind of in the back of my mind as I as I entered into seminary. Um, even questions of of economics, like is you know, is capitalism something that should be tied to? Should we assume that capitalism is God's 
um, has God's blessing um, as opposed to communism and these sorts of things or other or socialism or other forms of government. Um, all of those were juggling in my mind as I started to die, for three years dive deep into church history and theology and um, and it was um, I'm thankful that those questions were there because it made a, a much more vital experience, important experience. And I would add that it was in my third year at, at seminary that Jim Wallace from Sojourners came and gave a speech in our chapel. Uh, my wife, Courtney, was able to attend that that chapel with me. And at the time, we didn't know what we were going to do after seminary. I was in my final semester and yet didn't have a clear sense of where we were going next. Um, and in that chapel where Jim Wallace spoke, he gave a very simple message about the Christians calling to the poor that was so profoundly moving to me and my wife. Um, we, we ended the service in tears. And um, I became convinced at that point that God was calling me to pastor a church in, the inner, in some inner city poor neighborhood. And uh, that's what led us into the next chapter of our lives. And where was that? Where was that next? Where did that next chapter take place? Yeah, we ended up um, taking a church in Indianapolis in the inner city the on the near east side of indianapolis it's the um it, it's the zip code with the highest level of foreclosures in the state the highest illiteracy rate in the state the highest crime rates in the state um it was a very challenging uh place to be and um those were the dark years of my life in a way the years that i um, bumped up into my own limitations realized that I cannot save the world, that there are problems far bigger than myself. Um, I look back on the 27-year-old who entered into the ministry and um, shake my head at how idealistic I was and how uh, certain I was that I was going to transform the neighborhood I'd been assigned to live in um, and to minister in, and um, wish that I could tell him to uh, take it down a few notches and not get a big head and not believe that it's all about you. Um, but I learned the hard way through the, the hard knocks of ministry. Um, and uh, in some ways, I'm still dealing with the repercussions of those years. What was the environment like there in Indianapolis? I think a lot of people have a very vague idea of what Indianapolis is outside of the cults and driving through to get somewhere else so the near east side of indianapolis uh when although that probably doesn't mean a lot to many people you could think of the south side of chicago or the bronx in new york city although of course not to quite the same scale um but really all the major northern cities um philadelphia um you know, uh, New York and, and Boston and so on, um, have inherited the, the history of black migration post-Civil War, um, and then throughout the 20th century, blacks seeking to build a new life um, from the South. And 
there's a legacy. I mean, you know, I won't go into it all, but the redlining and the districts and the, the political maneuvers to keep blacks disenfranchised in northern cities. Indianapolis is yet just another one of these stories, um, along with Detroit and Chicago and all the rest. Um, it's uh, so, you know, the neighborhood that we moved into was. Uh, everything that you've come to associate with inner city, there were gunshots at night, drug needles in our yard, um, uh, you know, gangs and graffiti and uh, fights on the streets. Uh, it was a very challenging place to be uh, for this white boy from uh, middle class America. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, I felt a strong. I felt very firmly that that's where God wanted us to be. And so um, I moved my family and my young daughter there. My uh, my second daughter was born while we were there in Indianapolis on the Near East Side. And um, uh, yeah, I wrestled I wrestled a great deal with that sense of calling and the dis the difficulty of um, my life there as as the pastor of a small flock of about 75 people who were trying to be a witness and a light in, in the midst of a very dark place. And um, I'll share one brief story. I, I um, became friends with one of the former pastors at First Church, First Free Methodist Church in Annapolis. And uh, I asked him, as the father of a daughter, how he felt safe being there in Indianapolis. And Bill looked at me and he said something I will never forget. He said, you know, I'm not so sure that as Christians we're called to be safe. If, after all, we follow a man who got himself killed. <laughs> and it wasn't yeah. the answer that I wanted to hear. <laughs> I wanted to be reassured about the safety of the neighborhood and all that. But it was the answer that I needed to hear. And... um uh you know, how very far away I was from the comfortable half-country club churches of the suburbs. Um, all of a sudden, my faith became very real and very dangerous and uh, very uncomfortable. Were there things that were specific to wrestling with some of the more evangelical sort of baggage or, or, or history that you might have had? Or was it just the, the very nature of the, of the circumstances you were in? that um that that made it such a formative and and difficult time and if that's too personal then then we could move on <laughs> but oh no 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 it's fine it's fine i think it's i think it's a great question um i'm just trying to think of how best to answer it because it was um it it was it was a complex time and a time where a lot was going on in my life. Um, I was there from 2008 until 2012, and um, each day was difficult. Um, you know, it's in pastoral ministry that theology uh, becomes real and the rubber meets the road. Um, and pastors to this day are my heroes because they really have the hardest jobs in the world. Um, in no other profession do we expect somebody to be so good at so many different things and then pay them so little to do it. Um, the burnout rates, the dropout rates are astronomical. And um, 
so you know i i would have and this was not just a typical pastor this was inner city so i had people you know coming up and saying would you pray for me um i've been sexually molested this week and i don't know whether i should leave the house or try to stay there and if i do leave the house i think I'll be homeless you know this kind of raw um very real stuff isn't all i mean you know sometimes it, it's dealt with in the suburbs but uh th there's a pretty steady stream of that in the inner city and um made me realize how salvation has to be holistic it can't just simply be some kind of spiritual you know a moment of prayer where there's a change of status between you and God, and then you just go back to your life. It really has, salvation, if it is anything, has to be about this life. It has to be transformative. It has to offer hope uh, for the here and now, as well as for the future. And I'm not dismissing future hope by saying that. Uh, but salvation must involve the healing of relationships, the healing of families, finding a job, um, learning how to take care of your own body, um, dealing with trauma uh, from the past, uh, dealing with violence. Uh, you know, that's salvation deals with all of these things. Uh, I grew up in a tradition that, uh, I have, this may sound too harsh, but it was hyper spiritualized. It was a hyper spiritualized gospel. Everything about salvation was inside your mind and inside your heart. Um, and then it, and it was between you and God. Um, the inner city taught me that salvation is an outward and a physical reality, at least it ought to be, as much as an inward reality. And to separate those two from one another does violence to the gospel message. Um, it it's a way of raping uh, the message of Jesus and contorting it into something of our own of our own ends, making it something of our own ends. I think some people are very genuine. Some evangelicals are very genuine in their understanding of the gospel, and that's why I think the church has failed tremendously in its leadership and in its education to pass on a message to lay people and then to clergy that the gospel is just simply a get-out-of-hell-free card that you can keep in your back pocket until you die. That's a huge, that's a big answer to that, to your question, but trying to get at some of the things that I learned while I was there. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's a great response and um, it actually parlays and uh, parlays well into um, what what happens next for you i mean you you your pastorate ends ends right and some uh, you said into uh, i believe in 2012 and then um and then you go on to continue your studies first at duke and uh right. and then at garrett evangelical um and um you have since um you published your i believe your master's thesis is that right that's correct. Yeah, what I worked on at Duke as a as a master of theology, mm -hmm. and that book is very concerned with um, political theology, is the is the term you use, um, and in particular the formation of a Wesleyan understanding of political theology. So your book uh, is a politics strangely warmed, which is about understanding the political theology of the Wesleyan 
uh, Wesleyan heritage or the Wesleyan tradition. But from the first part of your story here, it sounds like a clear continuation of the sorts of questions that you struggled that you struggled with mentally and uh, just personally, as well as actually saw face to face both in your experience in China and being uh, a minority and everything related to that, as well as your time uh, leading a church in an inner city. Um, so this whole experience, this, this whole history you have has been sort of engaging, um, engaging a, a more socially aware side of, uh, the Christian and specifically the American Christian experience, which is really very different than the more, more commonly known conservative evangelical tradition or politics. Um, so you studied um, late 18th century, 19th century um, Wesleyan uh, activists uh, would be a modern word for them. What, what would you say mm -hmm. there is for contemporary Christians or contemporary evangelicals or people who've left evangelicalism for any number of reasons what do, what do you think there is for those people to learn from from those prede those historical predecessors yeah yeah you know the the book i wrote the book um driven by a concern to sort of recapture what evangelicalism actually is because it's become something other than what it began as um, perhaps the most formative book in my own theological education is Donald Dayton's uh, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. Um, and this book is a bit like that, except with focus on John Wesley and E.T. Roberts, um, the founder of the Methodist movement and Free Methodist movement, respectively. Um, uh, in a nutshell, what I hope people gain from this book is that uh, for Wesleyans, the gospel is profoundly holistic. It engages uh, not only the individual and the spiritual and the inward, but also the social and the political and the outward, the physical. Um, and that means that salvation involves, uh, you know, for Zacchaeus, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, um, Jesus doesn't say salvation has come to this household until after Zacchaeus has publicly declared that he will pay back anything that he has stolen from people um, multiple times over. Um, so in other words, it's a physical and outward reality for Zacchaeus, and that's what salvation is in, this, in that story. You know, Wesley Roberts, uh, those who are who lived prior to the 20th century understood that salvation compels the Christian to outward action and to social and to seeking social justice. It really wasn't until you know the 1910s and 20s when we have um, dispensationalism and 
premillennialism and um, a reaction against evolution in the Scopes Monkey Trial, that you get this kind of split between the fundamentalists and the modernists. Um, so that, that may be kind of academic, but I think it's really important for us to understand, and this is kind of what my book is concerned with, that we have to understand that this divorce between social action and personal piety was never meant to be. And I, I think that, you know, our generation and younger are getting that. They see the divorce for what it is, that it has created false idols. And uh, caring for the poor is not a liberal thing to do. It's a Christian thing to do. Um, so I, in, in my own small way, I wanted to contribute to that conversation and inspire people to understand uh, how to do politics, how to engage in society as Christians, and in this case, particularly as Wesleyan Christians. And following up on your, your recent comment there about caring for the poor isn't a liberal thing to do, but a Christian thing to do, where within the history of, um, of fundamentalism, 20th century fundamentalism, and its descendants, do you think that that sort of divide began to occur? Um, because even, even to me, even having yeah. studied these things in graduate school myself, like certain things are, they don't seem to have a direct, direct, very clear, like historical divide that suddenly, um, charity became a liberal ideal and not a Christian ideal. Um, right. Well, you know, it, and that's the sort of thing that hit us, um, historical theologians debate. Um, some people point to World War I as a kind of crisis moment where theologically uh, the optimism of the 19th century died, and in exchange we got a real pessimism about human history. Some people will point to, oddly enough, and I think it's a compelling um, argument, that when prohibition was overturned, um, and I think I'm trying to—I don't remember the year right now off the top of my head, but nineteen, uh, it was somewhere around there. Twenty-nine, yeah. That uh, that was a moment when many Christians sort of traded in their optimism about creating a perfect utopian uh, Christian civilization. Um, traded in that ideal and became more pessimistic. Um, I think we can look at what Christians believe about the end times as a really good barometer for uh, social action versus inward piety, because you have already in the preaching of someone like D.L. Moody in the very beginning of the 20th century, um, a kind, an attitude that this earth is just falling apart, that things are going to get worse before they get better. And um, so the theological terms for this are premillennialism, postmillennialism, but it's actually very simple. If you believe things are going to get really horrible and then Christ is going to suddenly break in and um, change it all, uh, then you are a premillennialist that... Um, most evangelicals 
the well, almost all evangelicals subscribe to this idea. Um, that's why you get so much rhetoric from the pulpit that, you know, oh, our country's going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, uh, that sort of attitude. That was not the attitude of, of most 19th century evangelicals. They were very optimistic about the ability of humans um, through their free will, um, motivated by the grace of God, to transform society into something better and beautiful. Um, but that, so, yeah, we have to be careful because secular liberal optimism is different than Christian hope. And I'm not trying to be a spokesperson for secular liberal optimism that, oh, we're all basically good inside. And once we get society ordered straight, then everything will be teaching. No, that's not at all what I'm, uh, I'm offering here. What I'm saying, and N.T. Wright articulates this really well in his book, Surprised by Hope, that as, as Christians who believe in the resurrection, uh, we have every reason to uh, to hold to a hope that we can here and now participate in the building of the kingdom of God, um, a grand construction project, so to speak. God doesn't need us, but that He does use us somehow mysteriously for the building of His kingdom, and that's a that's a far different picture than uh, let's all retreat into our conclaves. Uh, the world is going to all burn, and then we'll be zapped up into heaven someday. Um, really drastically different theologies there, and the implications are profound for how we behave in our in our society. Absolutely, um, and in a, a similar N.T. Wright essay, uh, he, there's an essay he wrote called "Jesus Is Coming: Plant a Tree," and it gets to um, it's it gets to the the point that you made about the end times belief, or you know, the eschatology to use the, the to use the theological term there um that end times thinking um if you believe that the the new creation even that the story that's being told in um in revelation even um nt right represents it as and mentions the greek that under from the original text being it's not the new earth is not actually made out of um it's not something completely new it's made out of the old earth the the and just as in romans you know the the all creation groans um and that christian christians help to help redeem the physical universe um that very idea is completely right. dismissed or um at least pushed down very very low within um fundamentalist uh, modern fundamentalist evangelical thinking absolutely right um, absolutely right and it's uh not christian it's time to call it for what it is that christians have always for millennia believed in the resurrection of the body um and this is the, the drum that nt wright keeps beating and i hope that people will hear him uh evangelicals have adopted a very non-christian understanding of the soul um, as some kind of ephemeral um, <laughs> ghost-like spirit, um, you know that will be that uh, that will inhabit a heaven that is not of this earth. None of the, that's not Christian. Um, the Christian hope is one of redemption of the present 
uh, physical world that we currently inhabit. And of the, the descending of Jerusalem from the sky to be established here on earth. So you're absolutely right. And this is, this is one area where conservative evangelicalism is, is almost treading on heretical ground. Um, and, and yet, because uh, of lack of education of clergy or whatever the reason might be, many people don't even believe that. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, again, starting starting with the end times thinking and the thinking that the world is going poorly and getting worse, um, that sort of overall pessimism, um, that starts in the early 20th century. And given the historical context, we they entered world war ii I'm, I'm sorry they entered world war one and then had the great depression and then entered world war ii i mean things were bad um and then and not to say right. that the rest of the 20th century was great or that this century is great but um but there was absolutely mm-hmm. a reason there were reasons to be pessimistic but um sure what I what I failed what I failed to um what I failed to connect personally um and perhaps you can help me and our listeners here connect is how we get from from that pessimism and the encroachment of these historical getting into historical theology and let's not shy away from just using let's not shy away from using the proper terms and everything um Getting into the historical theology of it, uh, you have the entrance of premillennial disp- dispensationalism that becomes the underlying standard for a whole couple generations of people across multiple denominations. Right. How do you how do we get from that to what eventually becomes the most identifiable? use of the word evangelical or, or evangelical, which is the political animal, um, being a, someone that's tied directly to, um, to Republican concerns, um, and not really not being completely unabashed about it. Um, by the time I was in college, there was, there was literally no presence, no presence of a, a college Democrats group but there was a college Republicans group that was decades old, um, <laughs> um, right. which, yeah. uh, which made no sense. But, um, but how do how do we how do we get from that place Absolutely. of having a beginning the beginnings of these of a number of different things, in, including this very influential uh, dispensational premillennialism that um, is the theological thinking behind the left behind series and the late great planet earth and all these other apocalyptic visions. Um, how do we get from there to modern, the modern evangelical political movement? Is there, is there a connection to be made? Um, because I want to draw it back to, I want to draw it back to how we get from this divide that we have between 19th century social progressive Christians, socially progressive Christians, um, 
Yes. Yeah, evangelicals even, socially we, progressive. We have abolitionists. Yeah. We have um, people in the temperance movement, um, people in the women's suffrage. Yeah, women's mm, rights. Women's rights. Um, all identifying mm-hmm. as Christian and even, a, yes, as evangelical, evangelical. You have mm-hmm. then for there to be this considerable 180 in the late in the mid 20th century what leads us to what leads us to that moment yeah it's uh, it's a great question and i don't pretend to have the perfect answer to it um because you know books and books have been written on the subject but you could really start to look at that uh the formation of uh conservative politics, evangelicalism, forming an alliance all the way back in uh, 1920 with the Scopes Monkey Trial, where, uh, you know, William Jennings Bryant um, is kind of the spokesperson for um, people who want a Christian America and um, versus the kind of um, secular liberal uh, Chicagoan um, Clarence Darrow. Uh, who, uh, you know, doesn't take the Bible literally and believes in reason and science and all of these things. Um, That's a good starting moment for looking at this, because once in the the culture's mind, evangelicals become kind of um, backwards and uh, anti-scientific, evangelicals are kind of forced to retreat and to create their own subculture, their own bubble. And so uh, you have um, the formation of colleges and institutions that are uh, formed specifically for the purpose, and Bible colleges especially, specifically for the purpose of creating and generating and and reproducing this subculture over and against um, what is perceived to be a pagan, an increasingly pagan nation. and so uh, on down through the 20th century, you have um, this kind of theological development that sees the nation as um, uh, post-Christian and uh, the need for Christians to uh, the divine mission that's been given to Christians to try to save this country from going down the tubes. Um, and so in come the 1970s, and some evangelicals were actually in favor of Jimmy Carter because of his own um, faith experience and uh, his own evangelical roots. But when he goes through a really difficult presidency, lots of it which is outside of his hand, but is perceived mostly as weak and incapable, um, you have a really a very brilliant political move on the part of leaders like Jerry Falwell, um, to, to tap into this large theological group of people who um, are opposed to a lot of the progressive movements happening in the country, to say, uh, let's join together and become a major voting bloc to oppose abortion, um, which was made legal by Roe v. Wade in 73. And, um, and you know, get our man into office to re-Christianize this nation. And so that's when in 1980, you have Ronald Reagan elected. Uh, and then again in 84, and we see it also in, in Bush's, um, Bush 
W's um, election and re-election. Um, so it makes a kind of sense theologically that if you're really pessimistic about the ability of humans to um, produce good and, and that, um, you know, some kind of divine um, intervention, cataclysm, is going to be necessary in order to save the world, then that kind of fits nicely with some of the Republican ideals of small government and government existing only to curb uh, the sinfulness of human nature, that we can't trust large government because it is necessarily going to be corrupt. Um, however, it goes both ways. The, the Republican Party's apologies, so to speak, um, influences evangelicals so that they conflate the two and aren't able to see the difference between uh, Republican values and Christian values. And pretty soon it becomes, they become one and the same. And so you have Christians who think that it is the Christian position to be pro-gun rights. It is the Christian position to be um, against illegal immigrants um, because they're, they become so conflated with one another in people's minds. Um, and it's not, I think it's not until, I mean, there was always a remnant of Christians, uh, Ron Sider and Tony Campolo and other evangelicals who were saying, wait a minute, back up the truck here. We are being corrupted by this alliance. Um, the, there are those prophets, but the vast majority of evangelicals throughout this time period are um, utterly convinced that, uh, you know, the Democrats are, are evil because they don't believe in God and these sorts of things. Um, it, you know, it's not a, that's not a great answer, but it's, a, it's just a kind of general sweeping stab at it. Rand, Randall Balmer has a great book called The Making of Evangelicalism, um, and he argues that the rise of the religious right actually wasn't um, primarily focused on opposing abortion, which is a kind of a noble cause, you might say, in the minds of evangelicals, but that Jerry Falwell and Liberty University actually consolidate this movement primarily because the government was forcing them to either integrate the school racially or not receive federal funding for their students. And this uh, thoroughly angered Falwell, who didn't want to be told what to do by the federal government, and uh, he starts the right, you know, the moral majority and this kind of right-wing coalition of evangelicals. It's, it's really a fascinating alternate uh, revisionist history that uh, I highly recommend to our listeners for those who are interested in the history of the religious right. Uh, hmm, yeah, I I haven't read um I haven't read that. I know that he did publish a some a much shorter version of it uh, of that central thesis uh, online, and I'll add that to the show notes. Um, where it was very he does draw a much a very clear line between. Brown v. Board of Education and and all the ensuing um, case law related to that and this darker side of evangelicalism, especially the evangelical right. colleges and their discriminatory practices. Um, 
which is just incredibly unfortunate that that is part of the history, but there is a lot of that within um within American history and American Christian history and Christian history. So it's a uh, absolutely yeah. we have to own that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. Um so do you think the word do you think the word evangelical has any merit outside of a political meaning now? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I go back and forth on this question uh, of calling myself an evangelical or not, and it usually has to do with the context, in my opinion. Um, among academics who understand the historic meaning of evangelicalism, I don't mind calling myself an evangelical. Uh, our listeners may be familiar with the kind of classic definition that David Bevington, a church historian, offered for evangelicalism. It, people who are conversionist, who believe in the central authority of Scripture. Um, uh, there's a couple other criteria who are crucicentric. Uh, that is, that something uh, profound happened on the cross to save humanity. Oh, and, and uh, also that they're, conver- that they're evangelistic. They want to spread this faith. Um, if that's the criteria, then I would say theologically I'm pretty close to being a conservative. Uh, I would quibble a little bit with views of Scripture and that sort of thing, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm close to it. However, there's also cultural meaning of evangelical, which is primarily defined by the media, by current political discussions, and it very clearly means uh, right-wing <laughs> Um, Republican. In fact, the average person on the street, I don't think, would even know that there are liberal evangelicals. They, uh, that, that seems like an oxymoron. Um, and so that's why I prefer to call myself a, merely a Christian, um, because I, I don't want to be identified with, uh, with Jerry Falwell and with um, James Dobson and these Franklin Graham, these others who have, um, you know, are, promoted their particular vision of what the faith is um, politically, and in my opinion, made it into an idol. Uh, Plain and simple, they're guilty of creating an idol out of political power, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. So in most contexts, I do not call myself an evangelical for that reason. And I think that's fair, given, I mean, there's a reason I titled, I gave this podcast the title it has, which is Exvangelical, and it's largely because of the cultural connotations of it, as well as the very fact that that some some people that remain Christians that come from this tradition are completely uncomfortable with it, whether it's because of the political conflation or because of some other theological reason, such as, um, I mean, there are so many to pick from. Um, you, such as either traditional gender roles, uh, views on marriage, all sorts of other things that, um, um, right. that this tradition has as part of its history. Um, so I think that's absolutely fair to want to give a much simpler, um, much simpler definition of yourself as a Christian instead of even any sort of even any sort of denominational identity. Sure. So yeah, let's let's dive in. Uh, let's 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 move now to the current election cycle. Donald Trump has become the Republican nominee officially now. Um, rec- we're recording this um, a couple weeks removed from the Re- Republican National Convention, where he secured the um, 
where he secured the nomination. And during my first episode, we actually, um, my guest then and I were kind of positing about evangelicals uh, response to this particular candidate. And we, at one point, um, we just kind of mused that there wouldn't be any endorsement of him. But now a few weeks later, there have been polls that about 78% of evangelicals actually support Trump. And that, that, incredible. that has been a considerable um, thorn in many people's side. Um, so what do you, where would you even want to start with kind of talking about why that particular endorsement is problematic? Oh, Melly, I mean, where do you start with Donald Trump, right? Um, I think that this could actually be a turning point in our nation's history, in evangelical and Christian history, by uh, Trump is exposing how um, <laughs> the evangelical support of Donald Trump by 78%. Uh, according to that poll, is is just exposing the degree to which evangelical Christians have sold their soul to something demonic. And the world sees it. The world will not forget. And it won't forgive. Um, you have a candidate who is openly saying racist things, who doesn't condemn, uh, doesn't condemn it when the leader of the KKK endorses him for a couple of days until finally under pressure he says, okay, David Duke is not an endorsement I need. Um, a man who bullies people, a man, you know, a man who is clearly a buffoon and a moron, but whom uh, the Republicans, uh, even those who don't want to, have had to get behind. And evangelicals are part of the reason that he's won. It's, it's absolutely amazing. The reason that I say this could be a good thing is that maybe it will actually cause some soul-searching among people on the religious right, who kind of like the Iraq war woke me up to you know, how the disconnect between Republican um, politics and Christianity. I think that this moment of endorsement of Donald Trump, when you've got people like Franklin Graham saying he's a baby Christian and excusing him for all of his other stuff, uh, and Trump himself in his acceptance speech kind of joking, you know, by saying, thank you, evangelicals, for supporting me. I wouldn't be here without you. I'm not sure that I deserve it. And everybody kind of nervously laughs because they know it's true. Uh, you know, maybe this can be a wake-up moment. I want to be hopeful about that, that pastors and people alike across the country will say, whoa, how did we get here? You know, how did we become associated with somebody who's xenophobic and racist and bigoted and a chauvinist? Um, and how far can this be from the ethic of Jesus? Uh, you know, you, you really have a strong man, a Nietzschean strong man, whose theology 
is more Nietzschean than Christian. And, uh, and yet many Christians are supporting him. Um, I see it as absurd. I think other people see it as absurd. And I hope that we will realize um, after the fact how bankrupt this alliance, this affair really is uh, with the Republican Party. So, you know, what's the alternative, right? I mean, I think uh, I would like people to take a second look at two writers specifically who were very influential in my life. Uh, that's John Lord Yoder and Stanley Hauerwas, who are kind of articulating a new um, Anabaptist theology. Look, I realize a lot of evangelicals are very uncomfortable with Trump, but they're definitely not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, because they're convinced that she's, uh, if not just as bad, uh, well, if not more evil than her, just as bad as Trump. Um, but I want to say, can we just take a step back and try to be the church for a little bit? Try to be this alternative community, this, this, this polis, this political thing um, in the world that witnesses to an alternative kingdom that the world knows nothing of. And that's at the heart of Anabaptist theology. And I, I hope that there's a revival of thinking uh, in an Anabaptist way, because um, we are seeing that uh, politics, as usual, is leading us to some pretty dangerous compromises uh, with Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Um... So can you can you elucidate a little bit about what that what those um what those two authors espouse that is the alternative? Um just a little just a just sure. a little bit of what their yeah. what their individual teachings are um in relation to um political action in particular. Right. So both Yoder and Hauerwas offer a, the, a theology that is very ecclesiocentric. Uh, meaning that the church plays a very important function in their understanding of the kingdom of God and of our role as Christians within, uh, within Babylon. So uh, think about this metaphor that the church is um, today in America, much like Israel was in exile in Babylon, that uh, you had this community with a particular um, understanding of who God is, a book that outlines um, the rules and the laws of this God, and yet they are in exile and surrounded by a pagan culture that does not understand uh, or speak the language of, of this tribe. Um, I think it's a helpful metaphor for us to start thinking that way about, um, about the church today in America. The truth is America has never been a Christian nation. So when you hear Christians say, how you know we need to become a christian nation again they're they're begging the question it's a that that that's that's a false premise um however you can say that there have been times in our history where a greater percentage of people were uh you know quote unquote pious christians um and if people are pining for those days um you we should embrace the fact that uh, all of this, I, this whole idea is rooted in a Constantinian, is rooted in the Constantinian union of church and state, which 
um, Yoder and Hauerwas write a lot about, that when Constantine, emperor of Rome, was converted to Christianity in 313 and declared Rome to be a Christian empire, something fundamental shifted our Christianity at that point. Um, that before, it was a sect on the sidelines of society. Um, Christians were oddballs who didn't fit in. And then after they become, the priests become the politicians, and they, they get in bed with the government, and we see where it leads. It leads to crusades, and it leads to inquisitions, and it leads to holy Roman empires, and it leads to uh, slave trades, it leads to, neo, to colonialism, um, and on and on and on the story goes. And, and Hauerwas and Yoder are reminding us that this whole union is in and of itself a bad thing, not because it's bad for the state. They don't, frankly, they don't give a care about the state and its health. <laughs> they care about the church and the purity of the church and of its witness. And maybe we should say good riddance to political power. It never served us well. Um, we will be Christians in a foreign land, and even though we will work for the welfare of Babylon, planting gardens and, and trying to work for the flourishing of the city, we will always understand that our primary citizenship is in the church, and our primary allegiance is Christ. It's for this reason that I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, and I've taught my daughters the same. Um, because we don't want to have divided allegiances. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both Christ and Caesar. Um, there are some fundamental incompatibilities with pledging your allegiance to both lords. And uh, maybe, uh, and I, so that's why I recommend to people, let's rediscover the writings of Yoder. The Politics of Jesus, that one volume is the most um, uh, influential book on my own political theology of all. And it needs to have a revival in this day, in this era of Trump. Um, the same for uh, Hauerwas' Peaceable Kingdom and his many other writings. Uh, these, these guys have something to say to us in this moment, this particular moment in church history. Mm. So the these teachings and these and this way of this way of thinking about politics is more about actually broadening it out from not just politics but to more social concerns is that fair to say um like re removing the the removing the more partisan aspects that's a very good way of putting it yeah i, I suppose that's removing the removing the um the empire part of it a little bit and maybe um, specializing it just a little bit to our historical moment here in in the here and now in 2016 feel free to elaborate and correct me on this but it sounds like kind of what the alternative to the alternative of evangelicalism is broadening out the understanding of what it means to participate in an overall society um, and not just within a political sphere as a christian is that fair to say Right, right. Um, you know, when we say politics, we have something very particular in mind. Um, but we should be very clear about, you know, Francis Crick um, defines politics as uh, the, uh, how, how, I'm not quoting him exactly, but the interchange between people in order to live peaceably and share life together. Um, so politics involves friendship. 
it involves um, farmers markets and, and, and exchanges of services and goods. Politics is very encompassing um, terms, how society is organized. Um, and so if we understand it properly under that very wide umbrella, a Christian politics um, is one that puts human life first. Um, it, it, it seeks first and foremost the flourishing of human life um, and of all of creation. Uh, it, it, if sin is breakdown of relationship between humans and God, humans and one another, humans and self and humans and the earth, then a salvation and a proper theological politic is one that sees the reconciliation with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with the earth. Um, and so what does this look like? It looks like the Reba Place community that we worship with on Sundays, where a group of uh, 40, 50 some people actually share possessions in common and, um, you know, have chickens in their backyard and try to eat locally. Um, they try to live out the gospel in South Evanston among um, a, a violent part of the city by sharing peace and hope and by being good neighbors. Uh, this doesn't mean retreat from the political sphere. It but it, it does involve a lot more action on the local level rather than trying to seize things from top down. It sees political action as something that should be organic and grassroots and populist rather than something that's bureaucratic and centralized. Um, and uh, it's an exciting vision and understanding of the church that, that we can recapture in this day when so many people are saying, look, I don't want to have anything to do with this election. Uh, neither candidate excites me. And, you know, I'll speak for myself here. I'm not particularly energized by Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, I want to instead think about how can I be a Christian, a witness to the peaceable kingdom of Christ in Evanston, where I live here and now? Um, that's a much more difficult question to answer than who should I vote for? Um, yeah, so that's what Howard Ross and Yoder offer to us, I think, and and it it's a vision of the of the church that I think is 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 pretty healthy. I don't agree with them on everything, but we need to hear their voice. Uh, you know, one popularizer of this message right now is Russell Moore, um, who has a book out called Onward, and Russell Moore is deeply evangelical, very conservative in his theology. I in fact I don't even agree with all of his theology. He's so conservative. Yet he's actually popularizing the message of Yoder and Hauerwas to a crowd that otherwise wouldn't listen to them. He's saying, look, let's just realize this is not a Christian nation anymore. It never really was. It's time for the church to be the church and the world to be the world and for us to know the difference between the two. Um, I rec I've recommended the book Onward to a number of conservative evangelicals because he speaks their language and challenges them to think differently about the relationship between church and state. So in in an effort to try to to try to wrap up your story as well as some of the more general um general things that we've discussed in relation to the history of evangelicalism, the history of their connection to the political sphere both um on both sides of the partisan aisle. You have um a, more progressive or uh, liberal 
history in the 19th century and a far more conservative expression of that in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, given your background in exploring these ideas of political theology, how would you, in closing, really try to um, lift a... Uh, and this is something you, 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 tr you address in your book, uh, of trying to um, rise above the partisan aspect, the deeply partisan aspect of our current political climate and try to address a more general yeah. concern about the state of the world and seeing that through a, let's just say Christian, let's not call it evangelical, just a, a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the lines that you say is, um, in your book is peace without justice is not true peace. And I, I love that line. How do you see people that are Christian or were once Christian or are evangelical however they however they might self-identify how do you see them engaging in these issues um in a way that's useful and not precisely partisan mhm mm mhm mm you know i mean i think the the first thing is that is just simply believing that jesus is lord <laughs> um trump isn't lord hillary isn't lord um obama isn't lord let's not place our faith and for humanity's future and for society's welfare and anything other than the ancient Christian affirmation that Jesus is Lord. Um, and recognizing that, that every uh, human party will stands under the judgment of that Lord. Um, and so we can't sign the dotted line saying, yes, I'm a Republican, or yes, a Democrat, because that sacrifices our ability to critique those views by a different standard. Um, Christians should always be political independents, I believe, because we always judge positions of political issues by a different standard, a standard that's external to um, the language that's being used by the media and by the, to the bifurcation between the two parties of Republicans and Democrats. Um, I believe when you boil it all down, if indeed God judges nations in the end, then he will judge them based upon how well they treated those on the margins but that is the ultimate litmus test. Um, how did the nation treat those who are handicapped physically or mentally? How did it treat those who are minorities ethnically, those who are economically um, disenfranchised and on the margins, those who are through sexual orientation or something else ostracized by the quote-unquote normal people? If, if the life of Jesus and the witness of the Gospels tell us anything, it's that we will be judged according to how we have treated the least of these. Um, and that means uh, locally building relationships and friendships, living out the Gospel organically in communities. Um, sure, I think it also means uh, standing up for joining the movement of Black Lives Matter and 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 objecting to uh, 
when the 1% gets off scot-free after almost bringing our national economy to utter collapse. Um, you know, we can join those sorts of things when we think critically about each, each issue. I, I oppose abortion, um, even though it's not a, a, a Democrat or liberal thing. I, I'm still convinced that, uh, that um, life begins at conception based upon my own theological understanding, and I would rather err on the side of treating that life as sacred. Um, it, so our values are, are um, don't come under, don't fall into nice, neat categories provided to us by the political system. Um, we have to be able to stand above them because Christ stands above them and judges them. That's a very good, thoughtful response. Thank you. Um... Well, Greg, thank you so much for uh, for joining me in this conversation and sharing um, sharing your your story. I I think it's I think a lot of people will be able to relate, and I do think um, a lot of people will have um, something to something to learn as well. Um, I'll try to annotate our conversation with some um, with uh, with some references to some of the things we discussed in the show notes. Um, is there anywhere people can find you online, either on Twitter or uh, a blog or anything that you'd like to point people towards? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I just want to say thanks so much, Blake, for uh, having me be part of the Ex-Evangelical podcast. I'm really excited about the what you're doing. Um, I think it's going to tap into something very important and, and hopefully spark a lot of good thought and conversation. Um, and I'm privileged to be part of it here at the, at its beginning. Um, yeah, people can, uh, can check me out on Twitter at gregory.r.counts. Um, and then, um, I also have a blog that I very infrequently contribute to, but, uh, it been writing on it for about 10 years now and it's greg, gregcoats.blogspot.com. Um, it's a blog called an, un, an untroubled plant. Um, which is a phrase from St. Teresa of Lusso. It's kind of my musings on theology, politics, spirituality, and my own faith tradition. Great. And um, so, yeah, I hope people will uh, check it out. Also, what about uh, plug your book? Don't Correct. don't forget that. So, I I picked it up on uh, on Amazon yeah, as a yeah. as a Kindle book, and um, it's a it's a good read and it's a quick read. It took me maybe. Uh, three or four hours over, over a couple of days. So, um, right, right. Yeah. I wanted it to be, you know, kind of a bite-sized, uh, introduction to, um, some of these issues, uh, through a focus historically on a couple of very important years, but yeah, it's called politics, strangely warmed. It's published by Whiff and stock out of Eugene, Oregon. You can either get it at their website, uh, with and stock, or you can get it off of Amazon politics, strangely warmed. Great. Uh, thanks very much again, Greg, for, uh, for, joining, for joining me. Thank you, Blake. It's been my privilege. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg as much as I did. Now, I want to remind you again, if you haven't already, to go ahead and subscribe to Exvangelical in the podcast app of your choice. Rate it, share it, review it. Also, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod. And you can follow us on Twitter at Exvangelical Pod. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you next week.